Welcome to Nightlife, the podcast. month, the list of trades that the government will pay you to study grew by 39. There are 111 of them now. The new additions include horse trainer, youth worker, vet nurse and blacksmith. And I immediately thought, hang on, I didn't realise that there was a huge demand for blacksmiths. Most of the time I see a blacksmith in action, you know, it's at some kind of colonial heritage site where you're getting an example of how it used to be done in ye olden days. So I was very keen to find out what blacksmithing looks like in 2023 in Australia. So we found a blacksmith. His name is Matt Mewburn. He's a blacksmith at Everly Works in Sydney, and he joins us now. Hello, Matt. Welcome to Nightlife. Yeah, g'day. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us to tell us about what you do. How and why did you get into blacksmithing? Um, really simply, I just love creating things. It was just working with my hands, being able to make things out of nothing, you know. That was what I really loved about it. Yeah. So how did you actually come across it? Um, I have the TAFE system to thank for that. So I was um, I was working in a completely different field. I was in an electronics job and I was just a bit restless, you know. I didn't, I, I didn't love what I was doing and I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. So I, I thought, um, you know, I might log up to a TAFE open day and I might just maybe check out some evening classes. You know, it wasn't I wasn't really looking for a serious vocational change. I just thought I'll dabble, and um, yeah, one of the one of the places that was set up was was a blacksmithing display, and I probably had the same thought that a lot of people have, which is, oh, I didn't realise that was still a thing. Um, and then the more I kind of I, I went along to the first few classes, and I went, holy, holy crap, I really love this. I really enjoy it. So, yeah, that was that was kind of the nucleus of it. Wow. So do you get a lot of that reaction that I had, uh, people going, hang on, how can, what are you still doing being black, being a blacksmith? How does that work? <laughs> yeah, I do all the time. And it's always, you know, the, the two the two stories I hear a lot every, everywhere I go and I talk about being a blacksmith is everybody knows a blacksmith. You know, everybody had someone in their family. It was such a ubiquitous trade, you know, 50 to 100 years ago that was everybody knows a blacksmith. Um and everybody thinks that we shoe horses all day long. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Do you shoe any horses? No, that's a completely different trade. So that's called a farrier. And, um, there's, you know, the, the trade certificate that we did, um, it sort of centred around the industrial side of blacksmithing. So, you know, that, that Victorian industrial revolution, the, the big machinery and the mechanics of it. But farriering, it has a whole hus- animal husbandry side of it. There's, it's, it, it's similar but not quite the same. Yeah. All right, so what do you make? So a lot of what we do now is um, either sculptural or architectural ironwork. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, big gates or or kind of ironwork that you'd see on the front of a house um, and, and a lot of public So when we're stuff. thinking, say, so, Matt, uh, you know, the Victorian lace, something like that that people have on their verandas, that kind of thing or the... Yeah, some of that. Some of it's cast work. Some of it's hot, hot wrought iron. So what we what we mean by wrought is that it's been heated up over a thousand degrees. It's not a liquid. It's it's still a solid, but it's very plastic, so it can be bent and deformed. And that's that's kind of how we form the shapes that we form. 
Okay. And so why would someone get something made in uh, wrought iron instead of cast iron? What would the difference be? Uh, cast iron's really brittle. So anyone that's ever cracked a cast iron frying pan or, or dropped something that was made of cast iron and had a fracture on them, that's the reason. You know, uh, iron, um, it, it's got a lot of carbon in it when it's in its cast form. So it gets really, really brittle. Okay. All right. So now describe what you do, because again, I have the image of the old, you know, Smith at the <laughs> Colonial Heritage Place. What does a modern blacksmith workshop look like? Um, so I'm really lucky. I work in one of the best workshops in the country. It's um, it's a large ex-railway facility right in the heart of Redfern at, at Everly. Um, and so that was built in 1887, and it's got machines to date right back to those first years of the, of the workshop. But it was very much designed around heavy industrial, large-scale forging. So we've got some big machinery. We've got big furnaces. We we take steel. We heat it up, as I said, over a 1,000 degrees, and maybe we use... A, a coke furnace which is kind of that really traditional old solid fuel forge that you've probably seen maybe at the trade shows um but we also use you know right up to induction furnaces in the modern age with green electricity it's kind of the trade has it's modified and it has changed but the fundamentals of it are things that have, have kind of stayed fairly solid okay so describe how you do it then i mean i'm picturing this this sort of giant red hot forge that you're working with but how do you you mm. let's take an example of something that you might make sort of describe for us what what the process is and what all the bits look like yeah so you, we need some way to heat the material um so if it's something that's a like a, a really large block of steel for example at the moment we're working on some balustrading for for the insides of a house so you know we've got these long strips of material that have got to be first we've got to find the profile and get that right. So that might be putting the whole piece into the furnace, getting it up to this plastic heat and then moving it under one of our, our power hammers or one of our machines. And that's able to, to beat it and hit it and change the profile, change its cross section. And then once we've got that rough shape formed up, we can take it over and we can, maybe we still need to heat it. We've still got to do some, some uh, change of shape and you know get the the final touches on it so we might use gas torches and again we're still heating it to the same temperatures but that gives us more local heats and more specific areas so we can kind of nuance it as the job gets closer to the finish we don't want to heat the whole piece because it can droop and it can change and it can kind of be really difficult to to wrangle so yeah we we change the way that we heat the steel according to what we really need it to do and how much of the steel we need heated at a time um, we still use anvils. We still use sledgehammers and hand hammers. Um, some of the big machines that we've got in the workshop, all they are, are kind of analogs for that. So, you know, a power hammer is one of the most common machines that we use. And all it is is really a mechanical sledgehammer. It's a big air-powered machine that drives a heavy weight up and down. And it's, it's kind of an analog for a sledgehammer. But instead of having a head weight of maybe five, six or ten kilos, it might be a, a head weight of several hundred kilos. So you get a lot more work done in a shorter space of time. So is it still I mean, a pretty um, hard labour in terms of really needing to use your muscles and your body? Is, is it a hard workout? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, and it certainly depends on the job again, but and we try and be as clever as we can, as much as we can. It's, um, you know, we've got cranes, we've got forklifts and, and some modern conveniences, but at the end of the day, yeah, sometimes you just need to throw some some large lumps of the vine around and some kind of, there is a bit of back that you have to put into it. Um, 
and we do a lot of group work when that's required. So, you know, there's some stuff I'm not plugging, but if anyone wants to check out the Instagram, there's sort of videos and stuff of us taking larger jobs out of the furnace and you might have two or three people using cradles and trolleys and things to carry the, the, the jobs from the furnace to the area that we're going to work it. Um, and that might be something that's repeated several times over and over because, you know, obviously the heat's sort of dissipating into the into the air and running out of the job. So you constantly, you know, you, you get it up to this immense temperature and then you do your work and you're fighting the clock. And then once it gets too cold to keep working, you might have to repeat that process a handful of times before you get the, the refinement that you really need from the job. Uh, we're talking to Matt Mewburn, who is a, uh, a blacksmith at Everly Works in Sydney. How long does it generally take? I mean, how long do you have to work with that piece of, of steel or iron before it cools down so much that you can't work with it anymore? Yeah, so that's that's mostly about the volume that you've got. I mean, smaller pieces with a really large surface area. So if you're working on something like a, you know, some of the smallest things that we make and we, we teach classes in is is kitchen knives. So you've got this quite a small blade and it's got a quite a surface area that's that's large compared to its volume. So that will shed heat really quickly, maybe 20 or 30 seconds. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, if I get a big block of steel that I'm I'm going to put under one of the hammers, um, it may be up to, I don't know, 300, 400 millimetres in square cross section. That would stay hot for 10 or 15 minutes at a time. Um, so it, it really is about the, the volume of it and how much kind of mass there is there to keep the heat. I guess you don't want to be uh, slacking off for a tea break at the wrong time, though. You have to go do it all again, <laughs> won't you? So um, well, a thousand degrees, are you guys really close to that that heat? Do you really feel it or are there modern contraptions that kind of keep you a bit cooler? No, that's one of the things you can't avoid. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the daily. So you really do get used to that kind of exposure. It's um, The furnaces are throwing a lot of heat out the doors, so you'll, you know, you're talking about having a cup of tea and having a slack off. So we get this big refractory period where we put something in the furnace and it might take a couple of hours. In the case of a really big piece of steel, it might take a few hours to get up to temperature. Um, so we try and plan jobs around how we're going to, what we're going to do while we're waiting for the job to come up. But um, that's the time to slack off. And when the door's shut to the furnace, it's pretty, it's, it's really not throwing that much heat, but then you get that action stations. Everyone's kind of leapt to action and we, we grab, you know, our lifting gear or our the stuff we're going to help maneuver it with and someone's got to open the furnace door and you've really got to get pretty intimate with the fire because you've got to grab it with a pair of tongs and drag it out and the longer your tongs are the more kind of the goofier and the more more um feeble you feel because of your leverage is is kind of not in the right direction so yeah you do you need to get fairly used to getting close to the to the heat of the fire and the radiant heat of the job you know big jobs throw a lot of heat as they're as you're working them um, so yeah, you just get used to it though. Now you must look back at the, the old days of blacksmithing and I mean, I wonder what job or task that blacksmiths of old performed. You might, you know, sort of respect the most when you look back at what they did and compare it what, with what you do. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, that's something I talk about with guys that visit the workshop as well. It's, um, I romanticized it a lot because I really love going to work and I, I just thoroughly enjoy doing what I do, but the reality of blacksmithing 100 years ago um, would have been a very dirty, very noisy, very difficult place to work. Um, it was a place, particularly at Everly, where we are, it had, uh, you know, there's, there's a huge social history where it was one of the first employers of Indigenous Australians. It was a, a big employer of um, post-war migrants. And so they weren't 
they were famously not treated particularly well and not paid particularly well. So, you know, for those guys working in that workshop, it would have been a really difficult and and um, maybe thankless job that they were doing a lot of the time. But, you know, for me to step in in a modern context and be able to explore these new kind of the more creative outlets of the trade, I, that's that's the biggest contrast, I guess. Now, Matt, you mentioned how loud it was. I understand that a lot of people sort of a bit older who've been working for a while find that yet their, their hearing turns out to be an issue from this job. Yeah, and in very specific frequencies. It's quite interesting. I've got a couple of my old friends that are um, – they probably lament me calling their old friends too, but I've got some friends that are retired blacksmiths and they all have very specific frequencies that they've lost, which – kind of line up to the sort of sounds that you get from the striking of a power hammer. It's a very percussive and repetitive sound, but it also, it, it kind of exists in this small bracket of, of, so I know that there's a professional term out there that, you know, you get the blacksmith's ear and it's really that, that frequency band that you lose from that incessant pounding that you hear from the power hammer. Uh, so are you guys checked out in proper ear, ear muffs and everything these days? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're we're much more attuned to it now. And there's so many stories of the old guys that they just didn't have any personal protective equipment. And so they used to, like in the boilermaker shop when they were riveting the boilers for the locos together, they'd just get wads of toilet paper and chew them up and stick them in their ears. And that was about the best that they could do. And, you know, it's no wonder half of them went deaf because they just, there was no legislation around that work, workplace um, hazard. It was just really tough it up and get on with it kind of stuff. Uh, Matt Mewburn is a blacksmith. He's telling us about what the job involves today. You mentioned people who come into the workshop. Is it actually open to visitors or not? Yeah, so we, where the loco is now, the, the blacksmith shop is the first two bays of a, a huge complex of 17 bays down at South Everly. So, and it's the, the sister building to Carriage Works. It's actually a bit older than Carriage Works um, for the people in Sydney that are familiar with that as a, an art precinct now. Um, so you can walk into what is the loco sheds and there's the centre aisle. You can look, we've got a short fence and you can look into the blacksmith shop from the, the public viewing area and see what we're up to on a daily basis. And then we also do recreational classes. So if someone out there goes, oh, that looks interesting, I might give that a whirl. They can jump on the website and look us up and, yeah, we, we invite people in for days or, or up to a couple of weeks to come in and learn and have a play. And there's a bit of, a lot of demand actually for those recreational blacksmithing classes, isn't there? Yeah, I think people are really, you know, with the the digital age and a lot of people working from home and, you know, I think people have become a little bit disconnected from working with their hands and they're a bit restless to get back to it. So we found something that I never expected to find when I first started running courses was we, we seem to have a disproportionately high number of people that come from you know, web development backgrounds or, or digital creative backgrounds where they they have that flair for wanting to create stuff, but in their day job, they're kind of doing it in this in this online way or in this computerized way. And but they still have that hunger. So they yeah, they find us and they can they can come and beat some metal and make some beautiful things. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Um we've got a we've got a few really exciting jobs on at the moment. We've um we're just in the process. We one of my great friends, and we've become great friends. We've done a couple of collaborations at, at uh, Barkaji artist uh, Badger Bates from out in Broken Hill. He um, he was commissioned to do a piece for the Biennale last year, and we worked on that with him together. And that's heading over to the Australian Museum. So we're kind of in the processes of re reconfiguring that and changing the the 
the balance and the lifting points and all sorts of stuff so that it can be installed in the Australian Museum. Um, we've got um, another couple of art jobs I probably can't even mention just because they're they're still in the ether, but we've started working on those that are going to be in, in the public domain in the next three or four months. Um, yeah, and as I said, a couple of architectural jobs, so some balustrading and stuff like that. Oh, how lovely is it to meet someone who loves his job so much and can enlighten us on what a modern-day blacksmith does? Um, we we got onto this because we heard that blacksmithing had been put on the skill shortage list. So do you see that, that you could do with more blacksmiths there? Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was quite an interesting one for us to hear as well um, in the blacksmithing community because, I mean, there's there is a real resurgence of people wanting to get back to some manual trades and i think blacksmithing has kind of reaped some of that there's been a couple of tv shows that have really put it into the limelight the last couple of years um but as a trade yeah it it was interesting to be included because it is such a, a bespoke thing that we do and it's such a niche thing that we do um you know i think we've we're probably one of the bigger blacksmith shops and we've only got four full time employees at the moment um but you know the great thing about that and the more people that we can invite into the trade it it just means broader understanding of what we do which which kind of will end up meaning that there will be more work out there and as people i think we find you know i've found in the last 10 years of doing it that a lot of people because they don't realize what's capable and what we can do that kind of connection has been lost for designers and for architects it's kind of re- that re-education process of saying, well, you know, you don't have to go this fabricated route or you don't have to go this cast route. You can do these forged works and it opens up all these possibilities that weren't available to you before. But, you know, it's it's understanding what's in your palette and what's in your toolbox. So I think the more people that are in the trade and the more people that are kind of having those conversations, um, as the old saying goes, the rising tide floats all boats. I think that'll it'll bring more work into the field, which is always a lovely thing. Yeah, look, uh, blacksmiths, look, you'll be the you know hottest profession in Australia. Um, <laughs> oh, my I, goodness. I heard the drum kit in the background. <laughs> one, of my, one of my texters says, do you have a beard? Uh, from time to time, but mostly out of laziness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Tim the texter, is that some kind of preconception that blacksmiths, blacksmiths all have a beard, is it? I don't know. Do the other guys That's... in the forge have a beard? You know what's great about that? I I hear more often than when people meet me, it's, Oh, you're a blacksmith. You don't really look like a blacksmith because I'm <laughs> I'm six foot two and I'm you know I'm only eighty two kilos. I'm pretty pretty light for what you would think a blacksmith might look like. Um, but you know, it's like we say in the classes a lot. You know, because we get people of all shapes and sizes, and it's it's not about force. It's not about brute force. It's all about technique. You know, you come in and any idiot can swing a hammer, but if you don't have the accuracy and you don't have the um, kind of the feel for it and and that technique for it, you're going to struggle. So, yeah. Mm. Now, do your family and friends get you to make them bespoke pieces? Like, hey, uh, you know, Matt, can you do me up a candelabra or whatever it is? So often, so often. And and I kind of like doing that too. You know, it was my, um, one of my little brother's 30th birthdays the other day and I was scratching my head thinking, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to get him? And I ended up, we made a um, a, cut, a, a skillet for him, like a, a forged skillet with a forged handle. And I was really pleased with it and I hope he's really pleased with it. But I tend to give away a lot of handmade gifts. Um, but the other end of that spectrum is when you make stuff, everybody expects you to make something for them. And it's so much easier to go and buy something. Like it ta- I might have, you know, it might take me, 
a day or two days worth of work to make something custom for someone that I really love. Um, and in terms of labor hours, you know, that's, if I was charging it out, that might be a couple of thousand bucks worth of time. It's so much easier to go and buy something. But if, <laughs> if I really care about you, I'll make you something. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know you, you, Matt really cares, eh? If you make well, you something you know. bespoke. If not, <laughs> whoop, you're off the list. Hey, Matt, it was so good to talk to you and find out uh, a bit more about modern day blacksmithing. Thank you so much for joining us. No, no worries at all. Great for, great for a chat. Uh, that is Matt Mewburn, who is a, uh, a blacksmith at Everly Works in, uh, in Sydney. I'm so glad we figured out why there seems to be this uh, demand for blacksmiths, so much so that they're they're on the skills list again. You know, the government's going to pay for you to go and study at TAFE if you want to be a blacksmith. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.